take a seat. Trinity Church, how are you doing today? Good. Good. It is great to see you. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job. I just appreciate the way that, I mean, it is one thing working on songs week in and week out, but Christmas songs, songs we only do really once a year, take a lot of extra rehearsal just to get ready. And so I really appreciate their efforts helping kind of usher that in. Uh, welcome to Christmas. And some of us are just like, Todd, the turkey is still settling. <laughs> I, I get it, but I'm telling you, we are so excited to kind of move into this season. I want to thank uh, Camille Danke and Sandy Peterson and their crew who decorated this campus so incredibly well. Can we just thank them for that? So I appreciate so much their hard work and their energies and just really helps it aesthetically feel like there is something new and a freshness of celebrating Jesus' arrival again. Well, I just wanted to tell you that I missed you last weekend. I had told you before I was, gonna, I was invited to be at Second Baptist Church here in Redlands to be a part of their 129th anniversary. And uh, they looked really good for 129. I mean, I was really impressed. But um, Pastor Anthony and Bishop Jackie are just great people who have been so kind and just including me and inviting me into various things. And so it was an easy uh, yes for me to do that. And so I appreciated the time over there. Just fun to watch them celebrate, honor one another. Just a really, really rich time. Brought my daughter Ellie with me and she just had a blast just Again, being welcomed in. Some of you from Trinity showed up as well, so thank you for being involved that way. It was really just a great day. And my son was here, and he just loved getting to connect with you. And so I appreciate that opportunity. And, and I felt remiss, though. One of the things I missed about that was I wanted to share with you last Sunday how easy it was to put on my socks that morning But that's all I'm going to say about that, okay? So, um, but I'm glad to be back with you today and ready to move forward in this Christmas season together. Um, this, this idea, what we're going to focus on, Christmas is that interesting thing uh, for, for pastors because you, you have a story, you have a narrative, you have a reality, and the question is, in a sense, annually, what lens are you going to look at it through? Because there's multiple ways to look at this incredible uh, story of Jesus' advent, his arrival. 
And this year we're kind of taking this approach of looking at it through the idea that the king has arrived, King Jesus. And what does all that mean and what does that look like and what are the implications in our lives? So I'm excited to dive into that with you, those of you here inside, those of you on the pavilion, and those of you online. We're going to have a great time these next four weeks exploring a little bit more of what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus is as king and what his kingdom looks like. So if you have a Bible today, if you'd make your way to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew, first book in the New Testament, find your way to chapter 13, and we'll be settling there in just a minute. And today, like many of you know, this is Chris and Carissa's last Sunday with us. They are literally, a moving truck arrives tomorrow, and they're heading out towards Tennessee to really embark on a brand new type of ministry for them, but one that is so well-suited, not only to their gifts, but their passions. And you'll hear a little bit more about that before we're done today. But I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, if you watched our e-news and directional team video, you heard Bill mention that we want to, as a church, be able to bless them financially as just a, a thank you. And they're going to be moving into a house that's much bigger than the apartment they live in here. And so being able to furnish that, the girls are going to have a backyard that they can play in. And so maybe even some equipment for them in the backyard to have fun with. Those are the things we wanted to help give towards. So today, there's going to be a box out here. There's going to be a, a reception after the services to be over here, kind of in this front structure area closest to the parking lot, and they'll be out there able to connect and, and talk and, and just kind of give some love to them. But you can give. There's a box out there. And if you didn't come prepared to do that today, we'll be receiving donations that will go 100% to Chris and Carissa throughout the whole month of December. So just make sure if you want to do that, just indicate that on a check, on a memo, or on a giving envelope. So we want to make sure that gets to them. In the meantime, some of you have asked, well, now what? That's a good question. And I'm really grateful um, for the way that Bill and Chris have developed such great teams, since we have wonderful, gifted worship leaders at Trinity Church, as well as some guests that we're going to have come and compliment them. Morgan Warner, who has been doing a great job with all kinds of facets of student ministries and women's ministries, young adults, will be rotating into helping us, as well as some guest worship leaders. If you remember the name Justin Unker, Justin has been out a lot with us. Justin leads a ministry called Likewise Collective. And our plan is to partner with them and have them help us in this interim season while we're looking for a worship pastor. So just wanted you to know that. And as you see some fresh faces up here, you'll understand why that is. All right. Well, let's dive in today. We're talking about this idea of Jesus as king. We're wanting to understand who he is as a king and what this idea of of a kingdom looks like, and we're, we, it, it gets lost on us. Some of you might follow the royal family, right, of the UK, but outside of that, even them, they're figureheads, and it's more of just a, an office. It's more of someone who takes a role. Rather, you have to go back probably 100 years or more to the last time that there was truly a ruling royal. And, and in that idea of, of when, if you just even think back to in your lifetime, if you've remembered when a royal was even born, the incredible pomp and circumstance, the incredible anticipation, especially somehow in our world, that if it's a boy, right, we have the future king is here. Well, this king's arrival was nothing like that. And yet he was not any old king, but the long-anticipated Messiah, the king of kings, 
And though his beginnings didn't look like anything that we might expect for someone of noble royal birth, the reality is is that he came in the most obscure ways, but to bring a kingdom that was the most needed and the one that changed everything for us. In light of his worth, and in light of what he came to do, he often was misunderstood. He often was someone who was rejected as the rightful king of this world. But the reality is, is what we get to look at in this next month leading into Christmas is that even in the midst of our mess, both 2,000 years ago when he arrived and even now today, Jesus invites us in to his kingdom as his loved and accepted citizens. And so what we want to look at today is beginning off with this idea, what is the king like and what is his kingdom like? And though literally we could do a whole series just on that, what is the kingdom of God and what is this king like, today we're going to take a snippet and we're going to look just in one chapter of Matthew's gospel and we're going to see the multiple times when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. And we're going to get at least a snapshot, a small wedge today of understanding of who this king is and what his kingdom is like. One thing that was so fun about the decor team was even these now what statements for each of the four weeks are up on the walls. This first one today on this side, and it says this, because Jesus' kingdom is examined, is expansive, and is extravagantly valuable, pursue it with all that you are. Number one in your notes today, Jesus' kingdom is made up of citizens who will be set apart from those who are not. If you have notes, by the way, you can pull out our app or there's paper notes in the back. You can grab a copy. Jesus' kingdom is made up of citizens who will be set apart from those who are not. We pick it up today in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. This is how it goes. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up in reference to the weeds? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The kingdom of heaven is like. You see, Jesus is a king like no other, and therefore his kingdom is one that's like no other. Six times today in this chapter alone, we're gonna see Jesus lead with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So let's look at the first of these. These words come right um, after Jesus has spoken and explained the parable of the sower and the seed. The parable of the sower and the seed, one of my favorite parables because it talks about how the word of God is being thrown up out, being dropped upon all kinds of different conditions of the soil of the heart. But it's in this soil, this good soil that it takes root in and doesn't just sprout a plant, but it produces a crop. So Jesus has just shared that parable, just shared what it means, and then he continues with this agricultural motif, and he talks about a man who owned a field, and he does what good farmers do. 
He throws seed in it. And he throws seed, this wheat grain that is going to grow up. And he talks about, though, in the narrative that someone comes at night, an enemy, it's stated, and comes and throws the seeds of weeds in among the wheat with only ill intent in mind. And so in this whole thing, as people are listening, and this is the problem, by the way, I'm going to say this as we look at some multiple parables today. Try to get into the sandals of the crowds and of Jesus' disciples as he was sharing these. And to them, there's not necessarily a spiritual meaning. To them, it's like, oh, I know a farmer, that guy Pete, and he has wheat fields. And uh, yeah, that would be really, really brutal if Pete's neighbor, who hated him, went and threw seeds of weeds in among the wheat harvest. And that's all they're thinking of. They don't know that there's a spiritual dimension to it. And I think it actually serves us best if we'll just hear the parable for what it is rather than jumping to what does it mean. It simply was this. Pete, a farmer, throws, weed, uh, throws uh, seeds for grains of wheat out into his fields to have another wheat harvest. It's probably something he's done before. It's probably something he's going to do again. But then at night, an enemy comes with this, in, this malicious intent and wants to ruin the crop. And so all of a sudden, and then there's time that lapses, right? Weed doesn't do, and weeds don't just pop up overnight. So it's now been weeks or months. And now as the, the, the plants begin to come up, it's really easily distinguished that some is wheat and some is clearly not. So servants come and say, what should we do? And, and this farmer uses incredibly just good, smart wisdom and says, hey, I I know it would be the easiest thing right now to pull those weeds out, but if you were to now, you pull up the wheat with it. Let's let them coexist for a while. Let's let them sit there and be together because then there'll be a time that'll be right to pull them up. Now, when you think about that, The simple, obvious question is, how in the world is the kingdom of God like two dueling farmers? I don't even get that. Like, like what in the world could that possibly mean, and how does it relate to what you are, Jesus, and what you came to bring? And Jesus is going to give them this explanation, and he's going to talk about a king who actually doesn't go through and just out of spite want to just pull up the weeds just to be done with them. But he cares so much about the crop that he's invested in. He cares so much that the wheat would actually grow to fruition, grow to a place where it's productive, that he says, let them coexist. He doesn't say that because he's lazy. He doesn't say that because he doesn't care. He doesn't say that because he's vindictive and just wants the enemy plants out of his ground. He says instead, this is the way that we'll care for the wheat the best is to let the weeds coexist among them for now. Look at Jesus' explanation. He gives it just a few verses later in chapter 13, verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Can I stop right there real quick? This is one of the things that I think is lost on us as we've been looking through the gospel of John. John's gospel rarely uses parables. I think actually never. In 21 chapters of this gospel, it never uses a parable. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are full of them. And so one of the things that happens sometimes when Jesus says something hard to understand, we talked about this in other ways. It wasn't related to parables. People who are looking for a reason to not believe, that's when they step away. 
I go, you know what? That's kind of nuts. I'm not interested. It's weird. I don't get it. And they walk away. But the people who want to understand, the people who do believe that Jesus is who he says he is, they pursue. So notice in Matthew 13, at some point, the crowds go away. Jesus goes into, his ha- into a house, and the disciples follow him. And they say, we don't get it. How is the kingdom of God like dueling farmers? Well, help us understand this. So they're the ones pursuing the meaning. Verse 37, Jesus answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands, watch, for the people of the kingdom. That's who the people, the citizens of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, Jesus uses that reference for himself. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Wow. The parable of the dueling farmers has a whole lot to do with what the kingdom of God is about, and it is significant. It is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. This parable is saying a lot about what Jesus is about, but one thing for sure is it's not a kingdom where all may enter as they are and as they please. There is a reality of there being this sense of being invited in, this reality of being called into and those who are not. It's the kind of kingdom that will have both citizens as well as enemies who demonstrate who they genuinely are in obvious ways because you can tell wheat from weeds. Take a look at the picture. It won't take long and you'll figure out which is which. You can tell. It's pretty obvious. So the first picture that we see about this kingdom and the king of kings is that it's a kingdom that definitely has this sense of people being invited in, people who are clearly citizens and those who are clearly not. And I want to say today, as we talk about this truth, and we even realize in Jesus' explanation, he said those who are the weeds are those who cause evil and those who are those that, that bring harm to others. Can I just say, apart from the grace of God, every one of us is one of them. This is not a kingdom based upon those who have a higher morality than others. This is a kingdom based upon those that God calls and changes and transforms. Makes not only his citizens, brings into his family, but changes us from the inside out. The very first words that we read today about the kind of kingdom that Jesus is going to have is that there is a harvest that will ensue both for those who are genuinely found to be citizens, Jesus calls them the righteous. And again, not self-righteous, not righteous based on our deeds and our actions and what we deserve, but made righteous through what Jesus will ultimately do on the cross. People who ultimately will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father and those who are the seed of the enemy who will be gathered up and thrown in the furnace of judgment. Man, that is an all or nothing kind of proposition. That is significant and intense. In your notes, Jesus describes a kingdom that is worth being included in, but yet one that is exclusive to those who he's invited in. 
Jesus describes a kingdom that is worth being included in, but yet one that is exclusive to those he's invited in. This is a very significant parable right out of the gates describing the king and his kingdom. That there is a sense of those he calls and welcomes in, and there are those who will be enemies. By the way, later in this same chapter, if you prefer the seafood version of this parable, look further. Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two parables in the very same chapter talking about this uniqueness of who the people in the kingdom are and those who are not. Number two in our notes today, Jesus' kingdom expands exponentially far beyond how it begins. Jesus' kingdom expands exponentially far beyond how it begins. Back to Matthew 13, verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like... Four times now, yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like. These third and fourth phrases still continue with kind of this agricultural or organic idea. And it's the idea that we get just as we're listening. Again, we don't need to jump to the conclusion. What does it mean? Let's just understand what is being said that very, very small things grow exponentially. Very, very small beginnings grow expansively. In this case, a mustard seed and yeast. So when we look at this idea, when these two entities are unleashed to their potential, when they're simply planted or embedded into, then all of a sudden they have this ability to expand in ways that are unimaginable based on the minute beginnings. The mustard seed is very small. You can take a look. Here's a, a basic picture of one and even a, a jar of a few as well. So this mustard seed idea, a small concept, we've heard this used before. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, okay? So this was a common understanding in the first century in this part of the Middle East that a mustard seed was just a very, very small representation of something. It has stored up into it, though, the ability to grow up into a very large tree, the kind that birds would nest in. If you can imagine that very small thing you can barely hold between your your thumb and your first finger, that thing grows into something that looks like this. Jesus is saying that kind of expanse. Take a look at this picture of a tree. This would be an example of a mustard. One more. There we go. A mustard tree. So you think of this idea of the growth, the exponential growth that comes from a small seed. Jesus' audience, those that were listening that day, they understood what he was talking about. Something very small grows exponentially, and it's hard for us to even imagine how something that big can come from something that small. Yeast, this leavening agent which causes bread to rise. Check this out. If you didn't know the biology, I'm going to help you today by converting fermentable sugars present in dough into carbon dioxide and ethanol. 
That's what yeast is doing. And check this out. Take a look at a picture. This is a, a version of it, so at a, at a micro level. Listen to what it does. One yeast cell can ferment approximately its own weight of glucose per hour. So its own weight is being constantly being transformed and changed into glucose hour by hour each time. Now, if you're here today because you said, Todd, I really want to understand some great lessons in agriculture and biology, you totally came to the wrong person today. <laughs> I'm not good at either of those things. But here's the interesting thing. I don't think Jesus was interested in that either. I don't think Jesus was trying to give an agriculture lesson or a biology lesson. What he was doing is he was taking from something known. That's what these similes are. Go into my English vocabulary for just a second. Simile is where I take something that's known and I say that it's like something unknown or inverted. Here's something you don't understand, but this is what it's like. You don't get people I'm talking to as Jesus is there. You don't get what the kingdom of heaven is, but let me tell you what it's like. It's like a small seed. It's like yeast that when you put it in the ground or you put it into dough, it massively expands. The kingdom of heaven has that concept. And what Jesus is saying is that he's saying that not only does the kingdom of God grow exponentially from meager beginnings, but that when it does, it's simply living out what it was made to do. You see, think about this question. How much effort... Imagine a mustard seed just between those two fingers and you go to dig a hole and you put it in the ground. How much effort is a mustard seed calling upon to say, I'm gonna just blow up into this tree next week and I'm just gonna kind of uh, strain and stress? It's just inherently built in. How much effort is yeast making going into a batch of dough and beginning to transform and change the biology of what's there? to create this agent that causes it to rise. I don't think any effort and energy, any straining is going on in either example. It's simply Jesus saying, this is the DNA. This is the design of what these things are built to do. We all understand that. Whether we understand molecular biology or not, we understand this is what these things do when given the right circumstances. In your notes... His kingdom is hardwired. His kingdom is designed to grow exponentially from the smallest beginnings that will continue to expand into others' lives simply by nature, by the nature of what it is. This kingdom is hardwired. It's designed to grow exponentially in the lives of people simply based on what it is and what it does. It doesn't grow just numerically. It grows exponentially. A kingdom that is built to continue to grow one person at a time, one family at a time, one community at a time, until it reaches the full potential, its full potential, and is complete. It would be hard, I think, as the disciples were hearing this rabbi talk about the kingdom, it would be hard for them to fathom how this kingdom was going to go anywhere beyond uh, the, the, I, the boundaries, the national boundaries of Israel. But just a few chapters later, at the very end of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 24, this is what he says. And this gospel of the kingdom, this good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel was always hardwired to be worldwide because Jesus was always the design of being the king of the world.
So therefore, the gospel had to go. It had to grow exponentially to get to people in Southern California in 2021. That's another facet, another dynamic of what the kingdom is like. Finally today, number three, Jesus' kingdom is extravagantly valuable and worth you pursuing no matter how high the cost. This kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is extravagantly valuable and worth you pursuing no matter how high the cost. Back to Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. For today, the last of these two, the kingdom of heaven is like statements, are ones that I think at a, at a surface we can understand. I think even those who were gathered around Jesus hearing these words could understand the truth of what was being said. That people, when they came in contact with something of great value, it was so worth it to them that they literally counted everything else as loss. I'm going to sell it all so that I can have what I need to buy the field, to buy the pearl. But I will tell you, that same behavior is something that at the surface is very, very hard for us to get our own heads and hearts around. The reason why is quite simple. Either you personally or people that you know have been deeply burned. Burned when someone said, this thing is so valuable. This opportunity is so worth it. You will never get a chance like this again, only to enter in and be tricked, swindled, and fooled. These are the people who make the headlines. A grandmother gets in some scheme and gives away $120,000 to something that she believed was of value and, and worth. Sorry, grandmas, by the way. Don't mean to single you out. But, but that is really hard for us because we have examples. We know of people, people maybe even close to us, who have been told, who've been deceived that something has great value only to enter in and be completely duped, be left holding the bag with nothing to show for it. So when we hear this example, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is like. We initially recoil a bit. Wait a second, so you're saying the kingdom of heaven is like people who go all in? Huh. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Two things about the comparison that Jesus makes about what these people do when they find these things of value and what the kingdom of heaven is like. First off, in neither of the examples does the person have enough to simply add. Okay, in neither of these examples does someone have enough resource to simply say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell part of what I have and bargain that away so that then I can go buy the field, so that I can go buy the pearl. These things have such great value and worth. The price tag is high enough that there's no way to simply add it in. There's something they have to first say, I've got to actually get rid of in order to get that. 
In both examples, both of those things are true. They didn't have enough to add these things to their lives. They had to sell what they had to get it. But notice the second thing. Both the the one who bought the field and the one who bought the pearl was completely convinced that what this is is so much of greater worth than anything that I have. I am absolutely, you, you don't hear this kicking and screaming, you don't hear this whining, you don't hear, well, again, what am I gonna do? You, know, you hear this, immediately went and sold everything they had to buy the field to buy the pearl. There is such great value in what these things are that it's worth anything that I would have to sell to get that. That's what Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like. A wild notion, as much as this sounds, actually is the posture that Jesus invites every single one of us into to follow him. It could be news to some of us. Because maybe we thought that the whole Jesus thing was a good idea to add into my plan. Following Jesus was a good idea to tack onto my pursuit. But at some point or another, I'm going to realize that my agenda and my plan are going to come in contrast with the kingdom of heaven, with this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, and I'm going to have to choose. This is what I love. I've told you so many times what I love about the Bible is there is no small print. Now, if you're getting old, your whole Bible is small print, so I can't help you with that. Get a bigger font. But there is not a bait and switch. There is not, hey, come follow me. I'm going to make your life so blessed out of your mind. It's going to be awesome. Get on the Jesus train. As though there was nothing to give up first to follow him. You see, this is what we have been looking at in John's gospel, finishing in John 12, We read about a Jesus who said that if you want to save your life, then you actually have to renounce the control of your life now and let him have it. If you want to live, it begins by dying. It's a seed planted in the ground. That's where life comes from, not by sitting on top of the soil. Jesus doesn't mince words. Jesus doesn't half-heartedly call us to follow him half-heartedly. Jesus doesn't say, it'd be really great if you want to join the kingdom. There's this really in and out portal around the walled city that you can come and go as you please. We'll make it as easy as we can. Jesus isn't interested in ease and comfort. Jesus is absolutely interested in you realizing how deeply he loves you. And in realizing that love and realizing what it is to be one of his you gladly set aside anything else in your life. Not kicking and screaming, not whining, but simply say, Jesus, that is all I want. That's what this king and what this kingdom is like. In your notes, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is so extremely valuable that its citizens joyfully set aside what they might otherwise consider valuable in order to be included as part of this king's people. Jesus is saying this kingdom is worth it. Lay aside everything that you think is holding you back from stepping wholeheartedly forward into it. 
and you will find that what you thought was so valuable, you will realize with perspective, means so little. My freshman year in college, I took up kind of a, a thing. It just came to me. I guess I was hearing such profound statements that I started writing in the back of my Bible uh, different quotes I would hear in chapel or in different messages at church or whatnot. And I just started writing things down to remind myself. And every once in a while, I'll just pull away. This Bible, um, my girlfriend, her name's Joanna, she gave to me when I was a sophomore in high school. I've had it ever since. It's had to be rebound. I got beat up pretty bad. But I, I remember, I will just take time sometimes to read through. And the kind of quotes I wrote, it's fascinating how those quotes defined my attitude in my heart at that time. It's powerful. One of the quotes I wrote in my Bible that freshman year of college is from the Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur, and it says this, this is the kind of totally committed response the Lord Jesus called for, a desire for him at any cost, absolute surrender, a full exchange of self for the Savior. It is the only response that will open the gates of the kingdom. Seen through the eyes of this world, it's as high a price as anyone can pay. But from a kingdom perspective, it is really no sacrifice at all. Man, that quote nails what Jesus has just been saying in this part of Matthew 13. Maybe said in a bit more pithy, memorable way, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. He is no fool who understands what lasts and going after that and letting the other things go. But the reality is, is that as great and as powerful as quotes are, I think living examples are even all the more powerful. I've asked Chris and Carissa to come out. And one of the things that's been so rich, if you've had an opportunity to hear from them about what God is calling them into, has been just this sense of an understanding of, God, we have grown up here. You think about family, friends, think about memories, think about the opportunities to love on people, to serve. All those things have happened here. And to say that this is a challenge to step away from this is an understatement. However, when you are following hard after Jesus, what you realize is, is that what he's calling you into, no matter how high the price, no matter how difficult at the time, is always, always going to be worth it. And Chris and Carissa have shared this on numerous occasions, that they have that great sense of saying, hey, Jesus, we are yours, and where you send us and our daughters is exactly where we want to be. And we are going to miss so many things about this couple, their love for Jesus, their love for one another, the way they love their kids, their friendship, their gifts. We're going to miss all those things, but one really significant thing that we can take away, that we can hold on to from Chris and Carissa, is this example of saying, God, your kingdom and what matters forever matters more than anything right now. And what we want to do is follow where you're calling us to.
So I just want to take a minute today, and I want you to process that throughout this week. As you have those mixed emotions of missing them, I want you to think about that is, that is the best example and illustration I have right now in my life of going, here are people who are saying, Jesus, we want to follow you no matter what. So I'm going to take a minute and close our service, or close this part of our service by praying for them. Would you do me a favor? One thing I love it when we do, would you just extend a hand as though you're joining me very overtly in this as well, and we're just going to thank God for them. Father, I just want to say thank you so much for the way that Chris and Carissa have consistently demonstrated this deep desire to love you wholeheartedly, to follow you, God, in every step that you had for them here in Redlands and every step that you have for them now beyond in Tennessee. And Father, I thank you for the sincerity, the genuineness of that, never been in question by anyone, I'm sure, that's talked to them. And I just thank you so much for the way that they're stepping into a role where there will be amazing opportunity to see the gospel flourish in lives that are broken, flourish in people who are hungry and looking for the spiritual food, flourish in people's lives who are at the bottom and are ready to look up. Father, I pray that you would bless not only their ministry, God, bless them richly with new community. Bless their girls they step into new friendships. God, bless their marriage that they would continue to be drawn close together in the midst of what has been really just a, a very fast season. And I just pray, God, that as we miss them, we would keep within us just a great sense of gratitude for who they are and God, the example they're leaving for us. We love you, and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do you thank these guys?